This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. The announcement, uh, as we expected, uh, yesterday came from Premier Kathleen Wynne about the, the minimum wage, and it's going to be uh, jacked up here in Ontario to $15 an hour. And, uh, well, let me put it this way. There's some mixed reaction to this from a number of different circles. As you might expect, there's some political pushback. That always happens. Because uh, this, this, you know, we're a year away from election. That stuff's going to happen. It's always going to be, no, we wouldn't do that if we were in power. Uh, others are suggesting that it's long overdue. Uh, Ontario, by the way, is the only the second province to uh, raise the minimum wage up to about $15 an hour. Are there pros and cons to this? Well, we're going to get into that in just a couple of seconds. Uh, with that announcement, of course, about the minimum wage increase, there are some concerns about the impact that it might have on small businesses here in the province of Ontario. One of those groups that have uh, expressed some of those concerns are the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Richard Corusil is a board member with the Ontario Chamber, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about that. Richard, thanks uh, for joining us. Welcome to the program today. Good morning, Bill. Nice to be with you. What we had talked about as speculation a couple of weeks ago now is, uh, I guess, going to be reality, at least in the short term anyway. Uh, Maybe you could just outline for us, Richard, some of the concerns the Chamber has about the impacts of this. Yeah, so, so look, at we, we share the government's desire for broad and inclusive growth. Uh, to achieve this, we need to ensure that we're not risking job losses, uh, which we think this, this, uh, there is an opportunity for that to happen, as well as rising consumer costs and economic hardships as a result of overregulation. So we think it's important to make sure that if we're going to regulate, um, that there's evidence associated with it in terms of what the impacts might be. And that's our big concern right now, is that we, we don't know, uh, nor does the government know, what the impacts will be as a result of this legislation that they'll be putting forward. And uh, our concern is we should know that. I mean, you and I would not go and pull out a mortgage without understanding what the impacts would be in terms of whether we can afford it or not and what that would mean. So what we're asking the government to do is let's at least understand what the those economic impacts would be and then let's talk about how we can mitigate some of the uh, those impacts so we get a better result for everybody is is it the, the the raising of the minimum wage is that is that the major priority here because there's a lot of other things included in this legislation as well uh extra holiday time is one uh, there, there's uh you know bereavement time leave time things of that nature too are are these those grouped into the same areas of concern richard well, absolutely, because each one of those layers on additional cost or, or difficulty for particularly small business operators. So, and when you look at them all together, then there, it becomes even more significant. And of course, when you layer that on top of the cumulative burden that we've now experienced over the last few years with electricity prices, cap and trade, um, all of those things, you know, the, the CPP in, uh, increases, all of those things layered on, uh, in many cases, to many small businesses. And we all know that you know, 80% of the businesses that are out there today are small to medium-sized enterprises, and they're and they're going to be the most impacted by this. But how do you, how then do you deal with and the the discrepancy in incomes and wages? And we know that there's a group of people in this province and in just about every other province right now uh, that we have labeled as the working poor. They're, they're not people that are simply government check recipients all the time. They're out there working, but oftentimes it's for that minimum wage and they're not making ends meet. How do we address that? Well, I, I think there are there are ways to do that. I mean, building a more prosperous economy always helps drive out new new jobs. The retraining po- portion of how do we get people into better jobs um, as the economy starts to change and becomes more knowledge based. So there are other things that we could be doing. In fact, helping lift people out of minimum wage, whether it's at twelve or eleven or fifteen, but into higher paying jobs 
by by improving skill sets and allowing them to be able to advance in their careers. So you're talking about investments in, in things like retraining and things of that nature, but that's that's wonderful in the long term. But in the short term, how do you help people to pay their rent and, and, to, and to buy groceries and maybe get medical supplies if, in fact, somebody is sick in the family? Well, there, I mean, I still think there are lots of other ways to do it. Um, raising minimum wage, we're not saying don't do things like that. In fact, we've, we had a, a discussion with the premier several years ago and because we were always seeing a haphazard increments to minimum wage. Uh, where we agreed uh, with her at that time that we should have a, a, a minimum wage that increases automatically according to, to uh, the consumer price index, which is what, which was put into place. So there is something there that already starts to push up uh, wage rates based on uh, on that principle. This is something that's kind of come out of the blue. It wasn't part of the review process at all. So so I think this is what's catching a lot of people off guard. And, and in addition. Um, it's being implemented very, very, very quickly. I mean, January 1, we'll see it go up to 14, and then the following January up to 15. And that's a 20% increase uh, in cost to the, to the uh, uh, small business operator uh, each year, so, so over 40% uh, in a two-year period. And for a small business, if I'm a small pizza, op, pizza store operator or if I'm a uh, owner of spa, I've only got a few staff. Uh, now you're increasing my labor cost by 40%. 40 to 48 percent. Now, how, how does that how does that business operator deal with that? Well, it means that they've got to either increase the prices. So, at the end of the day, as a consumer, we're going to see increases in pricing. Um, and then, if you look at the province um, and even our municipal government, the governments themselves are the biggest employers in the in the province, and it's going to affect them as well. So, at the end of the day, whether it's our hospitals or our social service providers are going to see their salaries and therefore their costs go up. And where does that money come from? It has to come from the central treasury. And nobody's talked about that. Nobody, We don't understand what that impact is and what that's going to mean. But the other side, and I've, I've heard this argument as well, Rich, and I'd, I'd like to get your comment on this as well, is suggesting, listen, small business has got a role to play here too, and, and they have to share some of the, the culpability for what's gone on here, because in recent years, full-time positions have been eliminated and replaced with people on contract positions uh, with no benefits, uh, with no pension situations. Uh, you're replacing full-time jobs with part-time jobs and paying them a lesser salary on an hourly basis, and they said that's that's contributing to this conundrum, Did, is there any discussion at all among the chamber about, about these realities as well? Because they have to be factored in. Well, sure, but I always think there's a balance. I mean, on all of these things, I mean, you want to try and allow businesses to have as much flexibility as possible so that they can compete and stay in business. Um, but you also want to have some balance in terms of what's appropriate. So, look, we have some bad in any uh, sector. I mean, you, you have bad operators, and so. We need to make sure that those bad op- bad operators are being dealt with, and we support that. We, we encourage the government to make sure that they're doing that, um, but we also encourage them to make sure that they're providing some education to business, particularly new business operators, new entrepreneurs, so that they understand what the rules and regulations are and how best to operate. So there's, it, it, there is a bit of both in terms of making sure we're doing all the right things and supporting business. I mean, we, the, the more, more successful the business is, the more opportunity is then for the business operator who then understands what minimum wage looks like can then afford to do that. So where do you go from here? I mean, the government's made their announcement right now. How does the chamber respond? Uh, is there a place at the table now to, to work on implementation of this? 
Well, um, we're not sure yet. Um, the premier said we're, she's happy to sit down and, and uh, work with us, and we're happy to do that as well because we think, um, again, it's always better to do these things uh, uh, as in, a, in, in a partnership of ways if we can do that. Um, and again, it comes back to let's understand what the impacts are, and then let, let's talk about how we can help mitigate some of those impacts. We think that's where the where we need to go if, if the government's willing to do that. Richard Corsell, of course, with the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Richard, thanks as always. Great to have you with us again today. Appreciate it, Bill. Thanks. Take okay, care. Okay, we'll talk again soon, I know. So so how does this impact, and what about the other arguments on this right now? Because it's become a very controversial subject here in Ontario with the announcement from the, uh, the government just the other day. Joining us to talk about that is Deanna Ladd with the Workers' Action Centre, uh, joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Deanna, welcome to the program. Good to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. You've heard some of the arguments pro and con to this right now. What's your reaction, first of all, to the government's announcement? Well, I think it's it's a fantastic announcement. I think it recognizes that people have been living in poverty for far too long. And currently, the minimum wage at $11.40 is, is almost 20% below the poverty line. And people aren't paying their bills. They They can't make ends meet. And I think that you know, our minimum wage needs to be sufficient for workers to be able to pay their bills and take care of their families. And I really think that this is what it's all about. How do you respond to the, uh, the criticism, and you just heard it again from Richard Corso from the Ontario Chamber, but I've heard it from many other circles as well, that this is really just going to fuel inflation. This is going to cause uh, small businesses to raise their prices, which is meaning that you and I are going to have to pay more for those goods and services, and it's just going to start this upward spiral right now about the cost of living. I mean, I think small businesses right now are struggling because nobody has any money in their pockets to buy their products and services. If you're making minimum, if you're making below $15 an hour, which 1.7 million Ontarians are in this, in this province, there is nothing left at the end of the month after you've paid your rent, your utilities, and, you know, your cell phone and some basic things like food, you know? And so the thing is, is that it, businesses are supported by consumers. If we have money in our pockets, we're going to buy. If we have money in our pockets, we're going to get that restaurant meal. We're going to buy the extra pair of shoes. We're going to go see a movie. When you don't have any money, which is what the situation is right now, there's no buying happening. And that is, I think, essentially what businesses um, need to deal with. And I think that this is a knee-jerk gut reaction. The sky is falling. It's going to be terrible. Whereas the evidence shows in places like Seattle, San Francisco, and lots of places where minimum wages increased, the opposite, in fact, has happened. Productivity increases, businesses do so much better, and people are doing better as well. And I think that this is really an, an economic stimulus to our economy. You got to help me deal with something here that's been a, a, a sore point for me for quite some time. Sure. And, sure. and every consumer is going to know exactly what I'm talking about here. Uh, I, I go into a, a store, a grocery store yesterday, uh, Home Depot over the weekend, uh, self-serve checkouts. Uh, yes. And they say, for your convenience. Well, baloney. It's not for my yes. convenience. It says they don't want to pay anybody. Or, yes. or even if they don't have those, uh, you know, where there are 17 cashiers lined up, three of them are open. And the other reason they're not, the others aren't open is because they don't want to pay these people. And, and it seems to be the new norm now. You go to the movie theater. I took my son to the movies last week. 
Uh, sorry, they're close. You have to go to the machine over there. I don't want to go to the machine. Yeah. But the machine doesn't get salary and benefits, or does they get an hourly wage either. It just seems to be the new normal right now. How do we turn this around? I mean, this this, this is becoming almost a pandemic of, of, of economic strife in this province. I agree. I mean, I think us as consumers have a really huge role to play and to be, I mean, absolutely, because, you know, I'm a mom. My kid is, is going to be turning 15 and is going to be looking for a job. I don't want self-serve checkouts. I think it's important for us to tell the businesses, if you want my business, I want a real person that I deal with, and I'm not going to accept less. But if we just accept that this is an inevitable way that things are going, then, you know, um, and we don't say anything and we don't speak out, um, then I think that we are doing a disservice to our, to our children and to our communities. We need good jobs in our communities. They don't need to be poverty wage jobs. And uh, we don't need robots everywhere. And, you know, and, and I think, again, um, I think it's up to us to really say what we, what, what we think is a, a healthy way to move in our communities. And I agree. I think it's ridiculous. I want you to ask a comment about something else, too, because I saw something on Twitter about this this morning as well. One person insinuating that, look, at the, the, the people that are making minimum wage right now, these are mostly entry-level jobs anyway. They're high school kids. They're college kids. Uh, you know, th- this it's not much of a big deal at all. So what's, what's the big fear about this? I, I don't know that the individual that posted that has actually looked up and see and looked in the face of the person that's mm. serving, serving them their coffee. Uh, in the morning or, or wherever else they're going or whatever the other, uh, you know, the minimum wage job may well be. Uh, because the experience I've had and the, 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 I think the information I have received, not just anecdotally, but I see when talking to people in, in many of these jobs, these are not just entry-level jobs. These are people trying to make ends meet. Some of them are working two or three of these jobs to try to pay the bills. Absolutely. And I think that, again, the research shows that you know, this myth that it's just, you know, young kids who don't really need the money and they're going to spend it on the latest video game is absolutely not true. I think if you look at people who are making 12 bucks an hour or 12.50, they are, um, you know, the moms who are working in the grocery stores. They're, uh, you know, the people who are sort of now having to work when they retire because they're not got enough pension. So they're, they're actually between the ages of 35 and up. And so I think that that is exactly it. Like, we need to make sure that our our jobs that we're providing um, are that actually bring people out of poverty. The minimum wage was set, was created so that it would be the minimum that people should get paid. But what businesses have now taken that to be is that everybody should be paid the minimum wage, whereas it never used to be like that. And so then the minimum wage becomes quite critical in terms of setting a floor of standards so that people are not living in poverty. And Frankly, I'm dealing with lots of teachers and families who are basically saying to me, you know, parents don't have time to spend with their kids anymore because they're working really long hours or exactly they're taking that second job to make ends meet. So this is really about, you know, um, absolutely, you know, a a huge increase in the minimum wage. But in terms of the long-term benefits, this is huge. This means that people will be able to buy healthy vegetables and, and milk and 
decent uh, food products for their families. It'll mean that families will be able to spend more time with their kids. They won't have to work longer hours. So the the health and the social benefits of better wages, um, the evidence is there. It shows that people are happier, our communities do better for it. And so I think that, you know, we need to be able to challenge those businesses that, you know, say the sky is falling. It won't fall. In fact, you'll do a lot better. Your 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 employees will do better. They'll feel good about going to work and not feel like, wow, I'm getting paid 11.40 to do all this work and, you know, how am I going to still make ends meet? So this is about value and dignity of the of, of an hour of your labor. And I, I think all of us, all of us want to feel good about our work and, and to know that we're working and that we can pay our bills. Dina Ladd uh, with the Workers' Action Center. Dina, thank you so much for the time today. We're going to throw this out to our listeners and see uh, what their thoughts are on this, but I really appreciate your input. Great. Thanks for having me. Take care now. We'll uh, do a short time. Uh, yeah, we are going to do phone calls. i got a lot of folks calling Jacob already. 905-645-3221, start 9900. Email bkelly at 900chml.com. And, of course, on Twitter at chmlbillkelly. Do you agree with the Ontario government's move to raise the minimum wage to $15. Good idea, bad idea. We're going to go to your calls, your emails, your tweets in just a couple of minutes. Stick around. The Bill Kelly Show, 900 CHML. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Right now, United Steelworkers Local 1005 has reached a tentative agreement with the American venture capital firm Bedrock Industries that uh, plans to take over Stelco, of course. Now, the union cannot vote on the proposal until June 6th. We'll tell you about that in just a couple of seconds. So what are the prospects for this? And by the way, the uh, sand is running out of the hourglass right now uh, about uh, the judges ruling on this as well. Marvin Weider has been following this story for years now, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. How are you doing this morning, Marvin? No, I'm fine, thank you, Bill. Is this a secure channel? Are we going to be listened in on here? Well, not if you've been talking to Mr. Trump over the last couple of days. Uh, you can bet somebody's got a little tap going on on your phone. But anyway, we digress. We digress. Uh, let, let's talk about this deal now. You, you had mentioned before that uh, one of, I, I think, the prerequisites for this thing to come through is they're going to have to come to some sort of an agreement with the unions. It sounds as if at least they've got something in principle anyway. Right. So, again, we'll just take you back. When, when Bedrock uh, said they'd like to step forward and take over this company, the judge said there's various things you have to do. So you've got to get approval from your secured creditors. You have to get approval from your unsecured creditors. You need to get the province on board. You need to get the U.S. Steel Parent Company on board. And you have to have an agreement with the two locals involved. 1005 really represents the workers here in Hamilton. I'm sorry, the other number is harder for me to remember, but the union down in Nanticoke... 8782. 8782. I don't know why that's so hard to remember. Uh, you need to get an agreement with them. Now, they got everybody else on board, and they left the two unions until the end. And even then, if I was handicapping the issue, the, the challenges of getting an agreement in Nanticoke are much smaller. There is a, an employed workforce between one and 2,000 people, but only about 500 to 800 retirees. So this question of pensions and post-retirement benefits, a much easier question to resolve down there. Here in Hamilton, there's only about 500 workers, but there's roughly 10,000 retirees involved. So, you know, much different balance in here. Uh, as well, 1005 had taken a very, I guess the word I would use, aggressive stance and said, there are three things we demand, we demand, if we're going to agree with you. One is we need job security. Number two, we want things done to top up that pension plan, so there's absolute pension security. And finally, we want full benefits. 
Bedrock's last proposal that you and I heard about was kind of like this. Uh, well, you know, in Hamilton, there's a lot of retirees, so we're only going to do about 70% of the benefits, not full benefits. We're not actually planning to put a whole lot more money into the pension plan. Our best way to solve this is the land trust, and hopefully they can sell the land and top it up that way. And then in terms of job security, we might be willing to guarantee jobs for a year or two, but we're not, we're not in a position to, say, guarantee you a job for a lifetime. That would have suggested the two sides were a long distance apart. It was last week that 87-82 got their deal, and, and although it's not been voted on yet, it was fairly positive language from Bill Ferguson down there. Mm-hmm. So that left Gary Howe out on his own. Does he become the, the stick in the mud, so to speak, that then topples the whole deal? If you can get agreement from five parties, but you can't get six, do you go ahead regardless? And, and the news we're getting now is that they have found something that they think, this is the union leadership, thinks that they can take to the membership and get a vote on. But the way the rules are, you and I are kept in the dark. They have to notify their workers, and they have to get the vote on this first before you and I will hear. Now, I, uh, I kind of jokingly, we talked about Trump and a leaky channel. These things also do tend to leak out, so I would not be surprised if by the weekend, even though that would be before the ratification date, some more details might leak out, especially if there are some union people or retirees who are not that happy with the deal, they might very well choose to leak some of this. But at this point, it looks like maybe the last piece of the puzzle has come true. And then to finish this off, if that is the case and they can get ratification next week, June 6th, then that would really set the stage that on June 30th, the court would say, okay, we've got agreement from everybody. Bedrock, you're cleared to take over this company and poof, the creditor protection is gone. You're back as a full-functioning operating company. I, I want to get into what's going to happen after June 6th first, but let's go back to, to your uh, your description of, of where they are on this thing right now. And, and you mentioned that obviously the union's position was they they wanted some you know guarantees about employment and and and, and who doesn't right? Right. Uh, I'm I'm sure that you know you you talk to your administration at McMaster about that all the time. I got a job for life, right? I'm I'm good, right, all the time, because I, I have that discussion every day here. Yeah. Uh, but but let's the reality here is that's not going to happen. So I mean that's that's the beginning. That's a bargaining position. But but where's the middle ground here? Well, that's you know that's a really interesting question. And and remember, both sides had sort of said, well, this is the best offer I've got. Bedrock said, look, I that's my best offer, and the union said, well, that's our best position. So that's what made me think that we might be pushing a rock up a hill here, that there might not be any giving room. If instead they really did enter this into a, into a spirit of negotiation, I can certainly imagine Bedrock saying, well, tell you what, we'll, we'll go from 70% benefits to 100%. In terms of job security, we can maybe give you security for two or three years. The thing that we can't do is make the pension fund whole. That would require $850 million, and we just don't have that kind of money to put in. Uh, we've got whatever our top-up payments, and they remember they've they've agreed to some top-up payments, but the total of them is less than a hundred million dollars. And and the union might say, well, if we got two parts and we got at least a plan to try to top up the pension fund, they might very well have said, okay, let's let's take that to the membership. Uh, that's the one part. The pension fund seemed to me to be where they were the most distant apart, and especially with eight hundred and fifty million dollars, that's just that's just something Bedrock doesn't have in his pockets. So I'm guessing that's where the union compromised. Bedrock, on his hand, may have compromised on the benefits. See, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to relate this to the history of what's gone on here over the last eight or ten years as well. Mm. Uh, and, and if memory serves, Marvin, didn't U.S. Steel also guarantee employment for Local 1005 as well? How did that work out? 
<laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, it was more than guaranteeing employment. They actually said they were going to make certain investments to expand the company and, and so on and so forth. That didn't work out very well because, of course, back then they based those uh, projections on um, sort of government projections of where the economy was going, and, of course, the economy didn't go there. I wouldn't actually use that as the parallel bill as much as I would the last time Stelco was in creditor protection and wound up being put in the hands of Appaloosa and, and uh, Sunrise Capital and those sorts mm-hmm. of people. Uh, at that time, you don't actually have to make any great promises, uh, promises excuse me, to the federal government. This is just a creditor protection uh, scheme that's going on at this point. So if they say, look, we're, we're just going to make our best efforts to produce steel, but you're right, a guarantee is only as good as your ability to enforce it. I don't know what the penalties would be if they say, we'll give you employment for three years, and then, oops, oh my gosh, the market went south, can't do that. But mind you, again, Bedrock has come in this on the assumption that the market is getting stronger for steel. This is the only way Bedrock makes any money on this deal. They're like a house flipper. They're going to buy a company that's in somewhat distress and then hope the market's moving in the right direction. In two or three years, people who need capacity in steel might come sniffing around, and they could flip that company to them. So if the market doesn't improve, if the market doesn't get stronger, Bedrock is going to be in an even tougher position. I think they're saying that's our assumption the market's getting stronger. So in that case, I might be prepared to offer you some guarantees of employment. Is it is it a fair characterization to suggest that what these guys are talking about, both in at 87, 82, and of course at 1005 uh, later on, uh, this is this is the final offer. In other words, if people are going to say no, we don't like this, uh, can, is there an expectation that there might be another offer coming forward? You know, that's again, that's a really good question, and I think it depends on what or why people are voting the way they are. So presumably, if there are some town hall meetings and we can get both the regular workers, if you will, and the retirees on board and hear what their concerns are, then if the vote was close, let's suppose it was turned down but 52% to 48%, so you were close in terms of the vote, is there some extra sweetener that could come in? I think Bedrock has invested so much at this point, it really wants to make the deal happen. If it missed by just a small amount, there might be some wiggle room for a little enhancement. But again, I, the key word I wanted to use there was little enhancement. Uh, if you know if they're going to put $100 million into the fund and people say, no, no, they've got to put 850 or there's no deal, then you've got to realize there's no deal. The only other little wrinkle in all this as you go to vote on these deals would be to what extent would the judge, because he's got every other piece of the puzzle in place except for this one, would he consider enforcing some kind of binding arbitration to say, all right, the two sides are are close, but they didn't quite get there. You can't do it through negotiation. Would he impose something? Now, normally the answer to that would be no. Judges wouldn't do that. But because of of how complicated this is, because it's been going on for nearly three years, because of the stakes involved, he, he might do something extraordinary and do something like that. So I think if people are voting on this, there is a bit of a gun to your head at this, if you if you don't vote for this, I'm not sure there's that much of a better deal down the road. Let's talk about the judge. We've all come to know these players, of course, over the last little while. The the justice overseeing this, of course, is uh, Justice Herman Wilton Siegel. Right. Uh, now the the 1005 is going to vote on this on the sixth. Now we're told that a few days after that, I guess on the ninth or something, uh, Judge Siegel is going to be looking overseeing what they call a sanction hearing. What's that all about? Well, in other words, at that point. Um, uh, Bedrock has to come in front of him and say, here's, here's everything that we've got, uh, and if, if they've got all the right pieces, he can then say, okay, you've met my deadlines, I'm not going to extend creditor protection past June 30th, and, and then they'll set the 
terms of the turnover. So here are the now the milestone dates over the next three weeks to make it happen. Now, if Bedrock goes there and says we don't have a deal, he's going to ask how close they are, and uh, and then he'll make some decisions from that. So the word sanction here is not used the way we do with a foreign government where we're going to put sanctions against North Korea. It's more to sanction a process, to agree to a process to get this company out of bankruptcy protection. Conceivably, if if Bedrock, say, say Bedrock just gets mad and on June the 9th says, we're withdrawing our offer, there's nothing on the table, then it would be the steps to sanction some sort of liquidation and, and uh, uh, breaking up of the company, because that's really the two choices the judge has here. There's either a route out of bankruptcy protection or the route is into bankruptcy. So he's, depending on the information he has in front of him on June, or June 9th, he can pick door number one, door number two, or door number three, depending on the circumstances. Right, and so door, door number one could be you're out of bankruptcy, door number two, you're in bankruptcy, and door number three is, okay, I'll give you another month to make some more things happen. I, I know many people don't like that. In fact, this judge had made it clear he wanted this all wrapped up by January 1st, and here we're talking about June 30th. But the consequences, I think we can't understate these consequences, Bill. This is the livelihood of more than 1,000 workers between Hamilton and Nanticoke. There's the impact on, on nearly 10,000 retirees. These are not inconsequential things. So if time is what's needed, the judge has the power to give them that as well. So if uh, he presides and starts this thing on the 9th, the sanction hearing, uh, if in front of him he has an agreement from both unions, both 1005 and 8782 at that stage, uh, I guess that makes his job somewhat easier. Let's assume that Bedrock still has their offer on the table. Yeah. Uh, you know, you just outlined a worst-case scenario. We don't anticipate that's going to happen. No. But if one of the unions is offside, uh, he's not, he's not going to be a happy camper. Well, he'll ask them uh, to you know to explain. So remember, they have standing in the hearing, so they'll yeah. be represented in the room by legal counsel, and he'll he'll be asking for okay, what's what's going on here. Uh, again, the union leadership could say, well, we thought we had a deal. We took it to the rank and file. It didn't pass, uh, but you know, let's say it was close. Let's say it was 60-40 or something like that. So, Judge, here is our plan going forward. He would take that into consideration. If the union were to say to him, well, 60-40, the deal is dead. We don't want to talk anymore so on and so forth, he would take that into position. You know, we just we don't know what they would say when the judge stares down from the bench and says, what's going on here? Because he, he really wants to uh, put pressure on all of the parties. He wants to put pressure on the Ontario government, on the city of Hamilton, on the creditors, on bedrock, because of the consequences involved here. And that there's a pressure in a courtroom that you and I cannot imagine when you stare and have to explain yourself to the judge. So, yes, his preferred thing is that on June the 9th, all the parties come forward and say, well, Judge, we've done it, we've got a magical deal, and he'll say, great, so now here are your steps to get out of creditor protection and end this thing, stop the lawyer's fees and what have you. If he doesn't have that, then he's going to be demanding some answers. What's, if you were a betting man, what's, what's your read on this? Are we getting close to a solution here? I think so. Now, the, really the interesting question is how will Gary Howe be able to claim victory in all this? So I'm guessing he's going to have won maybe on two of the three fronts. I don't think he can go back to the electorate or his, his uh, union membership and say, look, I've got everything. I've got the pension topped up. I've got the, pe- the benefits all back to where they were, and I've got guarantee of employment. If he can go back with two out of three and say on the question of the pension underfunding, there is a process. I'm not completely happy with it, but there is a process that is going to try to top it up, and I got these other kinds of assurances from maybe the province and other people. 
I think it's the best deal I can get. He might be able to sell that to the union, but, but his position that he had to win on all three fronts so there was no deal, it really would very, be very difficult for him to achieve that. It's it's going to be interesting to see how this rolls out over the next couple of days, and and it seems as if there's a a process to get them to the finish line right now. I, I guess the big question here is: Are going to be any bumps or any roadblocks that come up at the last minute? Right, and so and this is we talked we started this little conversation joking about Donald Trump. In a way, now this is politics. How can you spin your position? Maybe even on both sides. Bedrock said this was our best deal. If they've sweetened it, well, wait a minute. Well, look, you know, we 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 gave this, they gave this. Both sides are going to try to spin this as some kind of a victory going forward. I don't mind the politics if, at the end of the day, we keep people's livelihoods protected. Exactly. Marvin Ryder at the Brute School of Business, of course, at McMaster University. Thanks, as always, Marvin. Great talking with you again today. My pleasure, Bill. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Oh, God, where do you begin? Uh, With uh, the Trumpisms. Uh, it, it goes on and on and on, uh, simply because of some of the stuff that's been going on on Twitter. Of course, uh, Kofifi uh, is one of <laughs> the, the, the Trump, tra- or, uh, you know, the the tweet that went on just a little while ago, and people asking exactly what it means. People have a lot of fun with it, but uh, it it just begs the question, you know, you know, what was he thinking? Would he fall asleep in the middle of a tweet? Something like that. But that's that's minor stuff. There's a lot more going on right now. Uh, there's another story right now that suggested that uh, Trump is going to back out of the Paris Accord. Uh, he kind of hinted at that, of course, at the meetings that he was in uh, Europe with last week. Uh, there are obviously ramifications for that. If he does back out, by the way, he's in good company with Syria and Nicaragua. Uh, yeah, yeah, those are the, the other two that have obviously decided that they didn't want to be part of this. But now now we find out today that President Trump, when he was over there uh, pushing people out of the way so he could get to the front of the photo op, uh, was sharing cell phone numbers with world leaders, including Prime Minister Trudeau and the Mexican president, and now the new French president, and others, we are told, and simply said, if you want to talk policy or issues, just call me on my cell phone. Uh, now, security experts in the United States are going apoplectic about this, saying you can't do that. First of all, it's against protocol. Second of all, you can't call on a private cell phone. It's not a secure phone. Anybody could tap into that. Anybody could listen to that. Does he not get it? Does he care? Does he not understand? Let's bring George Breckenridge into the conversation, a retired political science professor uh, at McMaster University here in Hamilton. George, thank you for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Oh, you're welcome. The uh, president never ceases to amaze, does he? Oh, uh, man, it, it's astonishing. Really. I mean, I there's stuff about the giving out his, his uh, phone number. Um, he doesn't get it. I mean, he, he, you know, on, on the one hand, he periodically says, wow, I'm president. You know, who would believe it? And on the other hand, he really doesn't seem to get it that, you know, you can't possibly, you know, he's in the position, you can't possibly use, you know, an, an unsecured phone to talk, you know, to talk to anybody, really. I remember when Obama, were, you know, was, was annoyed that they took away his, his Blackberry in those days. Um, you know, he, he, it's weird. The other thing about that, I think, is that he prides himself um, with some justification, I gather, that he's good on one-on-one in, in private. He's good one-on-one in private. People say, yeah, he's a really nice guy. He's very reasonable to talk to. When he's in public, the whole thing is very, completely different, as we saw you know, in his European, mm-hmm. his European leg of his trip, where he was rude and boorish and, and all the rest of it. 
but he apparently in person so he he's a you know he's a deal maker he's a deal maker that's what he does you know that's what he believes in he believes everything can be solved by doing a deal and so he wanted he likes he likes he wants to talk to powerful people one on one you see but of course she can't do it that way that's just asking for trouble uh, and and by the way, I, I know that you know the the folks at Fox and others are going to say, "Ah, oh, there you go again." You know the the fake media are just going to jump all over this. <laughs> uh, it's not just the media that are doing this. And by the no. way, many many Republicans are concerned about this. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Derek yeah. Chollett, who is a former Pentagon advisor, he's also yeah. on the National Security Council, uh, has commented on this and said, "You must, as a president, deal through a secure phone." And said the president yeah. does not carry a secure phone with them. They usually go to the Situation Room, or there are two or three other yeah. locations, yeah. I guess. In the White House, yeah. do, do people not explain this to him, George? Oh, I'm sure they must have tried, must have explained it to him. But his his own needs sort of override everything, you know. And you know, he um, it's impulsive as well. You know, it's imp- it's impulsive behavior. And so giving out this, this, you know, it's what a big businessman would do. You know, he would say, "Ah, oh, you know, call me, call me private on my private phone." That's what, you know, but he's president of the United States, for goodness sake, and for better or worse. And uh, he just can't behave like that. I'm sure his advisors have told him uh, not to do it. I mean, when he was, the interesting thing was in Europe, when he was on his trip, he didn't tweet at all. And, you know, they obviously they took the phone away from him. But also the, the, what, they did, what they decided to do was make him so busy. See, a lot of the trouble comes from, you know, he tweets early in the morning. You know, sometimes very early in the morning. Apparently, the trouble comes from he insists on spending the afternoon or whatever it is watching television, watching his own himself on television, watching what people are saying about him on television. That gets him angry. That gets him mad. That gets him frustrated. And so he he, he has to find vent in some kind of way. And you know, and often you know his staff get him, but to some kind of reasonable conclusion. Like for example, on the on the Paris on the. Uh, you know, the climate accord, you know, the signs were that the, the staff people had talked to him and said, this is really not a good move to withdraw from this. You don't really, don't really need to do that, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, after his European trip and now he's stoking up a feud with Angela Merkel, <laughs> he, you know, he seems to be in a bad mood about the whole thing. And he's just going to, you know, he's, apparently today he's going to he's announced they're going to withdraw, you know. Um, so a lot of it is is uh, venting and impulsive behavior, uh, which his staff has tried. I think all the evidence for this have tried to moderate and tried to, you know, calm him down. And, but during the night, you know, they're not there, obviously. And and uh, and sometimes in the afternoon, this is where he spends his time watching watching himself on television. But there's another element to this, and I want to go back to the security issue here, George, yeah. which, which I think is paramount. I mean, there's the eccentricity of Trump, and I, that's been well documented. Yeah. We we get that, uh, and and the, you know that's that's a factor here too. But the, the the protocol here with with presidential phone calls to other world leaders, as you well know, but just to inform our our, our listeners. Is, is first of all, they're usually planned ahead. I mean, it's, you yes. know, their bureaucrats yes. deal with these uh, countries' bureaucrats. Okay, you're going to call at 3 o'clock. There's a secure line uh, so that nobody else can, t- can tap into this and listen. Yeah, that's right. There's usually a transcript of it, and it's archived because it's part of the official record. It's exactly. A, it's exactly. an official yeah. call from one world leader to another world that's leader. Right. It's part of the record, absolutely. And, I mean, of course, it's important for any kind of agreement that, you know, that, that's reached or any kind of, you know, any, anything like that to be on the record. Yeah, that's right. But if with a private phone call, that's not going to happen. Now, no. the, the hypocrisy that I see in this is to go back to the presidential campaign from last year, 
Did not Trump vilify Hillary Clinton for having a private email server well, and saying that that's, you can't track that? Of course he did. Throw yeah. her in jail, he said, yeah. because of, just because of that. Yeah. Since she was a security risk to the country. Exactly. Now he's proposing and has actually started doing the exact same thing. It's not an email server. It's a cell phone. Yeah, it's much, much worse, much easier to tap into. And, and we, don't, we don't need to say, well, there's the potential for somebody to tap it. We already know that the Russians have already tapped into phone calls all over North America. The Chinese are doing it. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the Russians are probably doing it to Trump's phone now anyway. But, right. but I mean, all of a sudden, the security goes right out the window right now, and it doesn't well, seem to matter right. to him. If he actually goes through with this. I mean, I don't know whether he's actually taking a lot of these calls or whether they're actually, have a, you, know, you know, most of them would have enough sense not to call him in that kind of way, because they, the other foreign leaders know perfectly well, you know, that this is going to be tapped into. And so they don't want to be, you know, do it that way either. So maybe, maybe it's, you know, it's just basically not going to happen very much. But it is, it is curious. I mean, the other thing that's the, the other extreme, the other curious thing about this was all this story about the, the opposite end of the security thing, trying to set up back channels, you know, yeah. Uh, so you know, so that even the American government wouldn't know what was going on. So you've got these two kind of extreme uh, examples of of how not to communicate as president of the United States. And when that story came out, he was over in Europe, obviously, when it broke. And, and yeah. you know, at, at first we found out from uh, U.S. security officials that there was a person of interest, is how they described yeah. it, high up in the Trump administration. Well, right. it turns out it's his son-in-law. Yeah. Jared Kushner. That's right. And, uh, and he was apparently having a series of meetings with Russian officials yeah, yeah. about setting up these meetings. And, of course, at first the White House denied it. Said, oh, no, no, that didn't happen at all. Yeah. Now they're saying, oh, yeah, well, that's actually a beneficial way to do business. It's not <laughs> how you do business. It's well, illegal. Not, and he wasn't even president at that time. And, and Kushner certainly had no authority to do anything like that. I mean, but why they wanted to do that is also very curious. See, I, I think what lies behind all of this, I mean, there are two things going on here. One is the Russians tried to interfere in the American election, and they do that a lot, you know, and, and they I think they wanted to undermine Hillary. They thought Hillary was going to win. They wanted to undermine confidence in her victory and that sort of thing. That's That was what they were doing. But why is Trump so, and, and why does he collected all these people around him who've got all these dealings with the Russians? And I think, I think it's about money. I think these are business deals. A lot of people like Paul Manafort or Michael Flynn, who was grubbing for money all over the place. Well, even Tillerson, for that matter. I mean, you know, yeah. he worked for big oil, and well, they have well, huge well, interests. Exactly. You know, and and did big deals in in the, in Russia. Um, so Trump somehow collected these people, um, all of whom who have who have business. And I suspect he is in he is he's in hawk himself to uh, to the oligarchs or banks around you know which are mostly basically controlled by Putin. I wouldn't be in the least bit surprised if that were the case, in which case, you know, he has to go lightly on on, uh, on, on Putin, you know. Now, now today, this morning, this morning, in this morning's papers, there are two columns, one in the Washington Post by Jennifer Rubin and one in the New York Times by Robert Douthat, um, comparing the situation to the Manchurian candidate. You're, you're, you and I, I, I just saw you know. I just saw that movie the other day. I just watched yeah, it on yeah, Turner Classics the, the other day. Movie. The original is, is, is a with, yeah with Frank Sinatra movie. and Lawrence uh, Harvey. Yeah, that's right. It's a fantastic movie. Now they come to the conclusion that it's more likely that Trump and the Russians are playing Trump as what they you know, what is called a useful idiot. You know, he's not himself. You know, an, an agent or anything like that. And probably the people around him are not agents either. But they're all tied up, I suspect, with in financial dealings. 
with the with the Russian banks or the oligarchs around Putin. I think that's that's really as you as you peel away the various layers of the onion in this thing, which is going to be going on for a long time. I think that's what you're going to find that it's essentially about money in the end. Well, which is one of the reasons, obviously, he's not releasing his fi- his tax records or financial well, records I, as a dare. result. I don't think he dare release his tax records, particularly not now. So, uh, yeah, I think that's really what's what's behind it. Because he otherwise, why would he have this curious collection of people sort of around him, in orbit around him, all of whom have dealings with the Russians? You know, it's very, very odd, and and his 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 all his unwillingness to say anything. And of course, the other thing they point out about the Manchurian, the reason why the Manchurian candidate issue arises is because his in his trip with, you know, in the European leg of his trip, he played exactly the way the Russians would have wanted him to play. They've been trying to break up this alliance between the United States and, and Europe, and he's. You know he's cooperating. He's doing it. He's doing it for them on the face of it. So they say, well, why? You know, why? Why is he doing this? Why he doesn't need to do this? It's well, why? Like that's that's a legitimate question at yeah. this stage. And and yeah. and look, it's not that we want to paint a picture that relationships between the United States and Germany have always been rosy. I mean, no. you remember a couple of years ago, finally, when Angela Merkel found out that the U.S. security forces had actually right. been monitoring her phone. Yes, indeed. She, she was yes. not real happy about that. No, indeed. But by the way, that only underscores what we were just talking about a couple of minutes ago too. That when you use an unsecured yeah. line like that, yeah. anybody's yeah. going to tap into it, and they certainly did in Merkel's case. Yeah, that's right. But but there has been a strength in that alliance with NATO, and Germany has always been a player along with yeah. France. And it seemed as if one of the in, uh, consequences or one of the goals that Trump seemed to have when he went to that meeting last week was to drive a wedge between France yeah. and Germany and the well himself, of course, as the United States, and basically break up that alliance, which is what Putin's been trying to do for twenty years. Well, exactly. You see, that's why the comparison with you know why is he playing Russia's game? You know, you know, it's not obvious from an American point of view why that is a good thing to do. You know, in fact, almost all the experts say this is terrible. You know, it was, you know, we depend. You know, this alliance has kept the world peaceful for so long. You know, and uh, the Russians are a threat to Europe more than to the United States. So, it's it's hard when you look at these things. Uh, to try to to connect the dots here and say, okay, I'm getting some semblance of exactly what the Bush or the the, the Trump foreign policy is in a situation like this because right. they, they all seem to be one offs here, George. I mean, you know, I, I'm I'm ticked off at Merkel, so because and it could well have been, uh, you know, to go back to some of the comments she made during the campaign and 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 yeah. now you know you look back even to her visit to Washington a couple of weeks ago too, where he refused to shake her hand. Yeah, uh, and yeah. and obviously this is a guy that holds a grudge, but it seems to be for well, the most insincere she, reasons. She's a powerful person. She's the key person in Europe, and she's a woman as well. She's a powerful woman, and uh, and that I suspect makes Trump a bit uneasy in the first place. Um, yeah, it's very foolish of him to to pick this quarrel with Merkel. I mean, she's playing it up because she's in an election campaign. She's, yeah. you know, in September. So she's, you know, she needs to be seen to be standing up to him. Um, but it's very foolish indeed. And, of course, the, the good thing about it from the European point of view, from the general point of view, is that with Macron as the new prime minister, the new French president, that closes down, you know, what might have been another loophole in the whole situation. He and, he and Merkel are obviously going to get on extremely well. And so that solidifies the, they're, they're really, the France and Germany are really the core of the European Union and of NATO. And um, so, you know, so at least, you know, the worst didn't, <laughs> the worst didn't happen. 
but uh, he's, it's very foolish. I mean, virtually unanimously, the foreign policy establishment in the United States says this is exactly the wrong way to go. Well, it's it's interesting to see the impact this is going to have on, on NATO and the alliances yeah. in Europe right now. Merkel, of course, uh, made some statements earlier this week to simply say, well, we're going to have to learn to go alone without the United States backing us anymore, yeah, exactly. that, which is kind of an extreme statement, and I don't know if it's necessarily well, that extreme. Like, she's in an election campaign, so. But but it does perhaps uh, signal a, a, a dawning of a new era with NATO and and with the European alliances to suggest that look at if Trump's going to play that way then you know we just don't invite him into the sandbox. Well, exactly. Yeah, as long as Trump is around, I think that that's what they're going to have to work on that assumption. Yeah. <laughs> Which one raises some serious questions about what's going to be happening in Europe over the next couple of days, politically and economically as well. Yeah. Uh, with particular trade deals and a number of other things that are going on. Yeah. Uh, between the two countries right now. Uh, which begs to say, we've got a couple of minutes left here. Uh, Trump has said he's going to make up his mind about the Paris uh, climate deal in the next little while and announce it in the next few days. The right. stories we're hearing out of Washington, he's already decided and he's, he's out, which I guess yeah. is really a surprise to nobody. Well, no, I suppose it isn't. But, I mean, it's so completely unnecessary. I mean, it, it's, 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 it's a... It's a pointless kind of insult to to the rest of the world. I mean, the Chinese are involved. You know, I, don't, I don't know about Putin, but the Chinese are heavily involved in this. You know, so it's not just Europe he's, you know, he's, he's thumbing his nose at. And, uh, it, 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 and it doesn't have a big, huge political payoff. Well, I mean, it helps, you know, a lot of Republicans would will cheer, I'm sure. You know, so it, maybe it does have a political payoff back home. But uh, it, it, it's short, short-sighted. And well, if, if there's a political payoff, George, it's to his base. Yeah, that's right. And, and, you know, this is very much, you know, if anything's on the sort of the wrong side of history, <laughs> this is it. <laughs> so, so, and Charles Trudeau, I think, has been pointing out, you know, you can't stop history from moving in a particular direction at any time. And um, no, it's just, it's, it's unfortunate. But... I guess maybe I don't know if whether or not this is based on the idea that Trump seems to think that he holds all the cards here yeah. in this situation, and 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 I mean can go back to previous incarnations right now. Uh, you know, when when the Bush administration uh, back in in uh, in those eras uh, decided they weren't going to get into the Kyoto Protocol. Now yeah. you can talk about the the legitimacy and, and the efficiency of the Kyoto Protocol, yes or no. But it was the deal that was on the table at that time, and Bush decided, no, we're not going to do this. Yeah. Uh, climate change still existed, and people did start moving ahead, not yeah. to the extent we'd like to see. But yeah. in other words, the U.S.'s uh, you know, decision at that time not to be involved didn't have that much of an impact on, on the world response to it. No, I don't think this will either. I say the fact that the Chinese are on board with this. You know, they're obviously a growing part of the world economy and will soon be challenging, really challenging the United States in that regard. The fact that they're on the side with this means the American action, if, if that's what he does in fact decide to do, is just foolishness. And, and doesn't, as you say, it doesn't. It's not really going to have a long-term impact at all. Except for one thing that a, a lot of people seem to be concerned about right now: is this moving the United States even more closely to an isolationist policy, as opposed to to being a, a country that would be inclusive and start to build bridges? Yeah, I think. It, I mean, it make what it makes the United States very unreliable. I mean, even in Israel, I mean, even in Israel, where he was, you know, where he, Netanyahu was just delighted to see him, there was a certain uneasiness about some of the things he said there. You know, so he's, he's not seen as reliable by almost anybody. 
Well, and and well, now he was embracing him both, uh, you know, literally and and psychologically, I suppose, during his visit over there. Yeah. Uh, we we were also told that Israeli uh, intelligence sources were saying we can't trust the Americans anymore. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's right. I mean, there's a, there's a there's a division in a, in Israel between the politicians, like Netanyahu, and the security military people. Very often, they they have often quite different perspectives on the whole situation. So even in Israel, he's not you know beginning to realize he's not that reliable. So um, yeah, well, you know, it, it's 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 a sad, it's, it's embarrassing to see the United States in this situation. I don't think in the long run it, it will have all that um, negative an effect, but in the short run it's, it's causing a lot of alarm and chaos anyway. Indeed. George, thanks as always. Great having yeah, you on okay. the program again yeah, today. You're welcome. Bye. George Breckenridge, of course, retired political science professor, uh, of course, uh, majoring in the United States uh, relations uh, with another series of Trumpisms that are having an impact, an impact either, other than the world stage, to be sure. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.